It's not unusual to find plenty of wine caves and wine cellars in wine country. What is unusual is discovering a sophisticated broadcast facility inside these well-protected and often top-secret chambers. But maybe it really isn't that surprising that America's number one wine broadcast originates from the soul of wine country. And it is our great privilege to do all we can to inspire you. If you drink wine simply because, well, it's a drink, we've got our work cut out. For literally thousands of years, wine has fueled celebrations, ended conflicts, and provided the ultimate connection between one human being and another. It makes food taste better, lifts spirits, sparks our imagination, and beckons us to slow down and love life. If that all sounds good to you, you're in the right place. So sit back, clear your head, put any worries you have on hold, and join us as we go in search of this week's Grape Encounter. But be warned, we speak a much different language than what you typically experience in most wine-centric environments. But you didn't come here because you're ordinary, did you? Good, because your host, David Wilson, is here to take you far, far away from the beaten path. Here's David. All right, everybody, there is a very big holiday that is coming up. It may not be on your calendar. It's a shame if it isn't on your calendar because it is a whopper in the wine business. It is National Rosé Day. What? You're saying I didn't know there was a National Rosé Day? Anyway, we've got lots to talk about where rosé is concerned because for sure it is one of the most misunderstood categories of wine. So in order to untangle that the best way that we possibly can and to do justice to this event that's coming up, I have on today a major, major superstar, and I just am so glad to welcome John McDaniel, and he is the founder and CEO of Second City Soil, but he also is one of the most respected sommeliers, certainly in this country, Food & Wine Magazine Sommelier of the Year in 2018, Wine Enthusiasts, 40 Under 40, Tastemakers in 2017, Riedel Crystals International Sommelier of the Month in November of 2016, and then it just goes on from there. <laughs> it's a nightmare trying to get all that on your business card. Hey, John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, David, and happy Chocolate Macaroon Day today, actually. No, so uh, <laughs> There you go. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get to have a Chocolate Macaroon Day? <laughs> I, I, I think every day could be if you really wanted it to be, but well, happy to be here with you. Thanks for taking some time to chat with me today. Let's first talk a little bit about your firm, Second City Soil, because it's yeah. a really well-respected consultancy practice. Talk a little bit about what your clientele is like. I'm assuming that you're mostly dealing with restaurants and I suppose wholesalers and retailers. So it's it's a pretty mixed bag. I've had this as a full-time consultancy for a little over two years. It started as a blog actually when I was still in the restaurant game. You know, really wanted to bring attention to my peers and to the Chicago wine community. And then when I realized that I didn't want to work at one o'clock in the morning on a restaurant floor anymore, I had the brand, I had the company, I had everything ready to go. And so that really evolved into the company. You know, the, the easiest way to describe what I do is that I'm the one that usually gets the call for any winery, brand, trade organization, global fill in the blank 
that wants to answer the question, how do we do better in Chicago? You know, Chicago is not New York, it's not San Francisco. And so everyone's trying to really figure out uh, how to expand their sales and marketing and education to consumers and trade here in the market. And so I find that really interesting because I really think of Chicago as being a very food-centric destination. I mean, some of the best restaurants in the world there. It sounds to me like you're saying that wine hasn't quite caught up with food. Is that true? Yeah. You know, Chicago, as you said, is a world-class food city. It's a very chef-driven city. So if you look at the restaurants and and the groups and operators, they're very focused on the chef being the, the centerpiece of that. And they're focused on, you know, developing wine programs in a city that, you know, Chicago's a blue collar town. It's a beer and whiskey town at the end of the day. And when we look at how to pair wine successfully with the amazing steakhouses and different restaurants of this great city, you know, the investment in creativity and not just that, but how to promote that creativity, how to promote the wine programs of the city. That certainly is, uh, you know, something that has been lacking. And I think we're doing a better job today than we have in the past. You know, the, the core cuisine of what Chicago is, is built in steakhouses and very Americana kind of program. So a lot of domestic, you know, Cabernet and Napa Valley dominates uh, Sonoma County. And we have a, a really strong Italian community and some of the best Italian restaurants. And so, you know, if I were to pick kind of two places that our wine community does really well. It's in domestic red wine, Cabernets and and Pinot Noir, and then Italian wine as well. And so this is a market that's more so than New York. New York diners will allow you to kind of overcharge them. In Chicago, (laughs) it's also a very value-driven city where the diner is very intelligent. They travel, they know what things cost. And so the ability of how you price your wine programs and you know, really finding something that is unique has to be something that also kind of over delivers for the price. So your median price for what a wine bottle will sell like on a restaurant list is less than San Francisco or New York. And so higher end boutique wineries, you know, really have to navigate a lot more with what they can sell into the market, how it is priced, the reception by the buyers and being able to then sell it on a restaurant floor. Well, I'm guessing that COVID-19 has forced you to retool what it is message-wise that you deliver to your clientele because it seems to me that all bets are off in terms of the way that we have been marketing wine for a lot of different reasons. What's your take? Yeah, it's, you know, still to this day, the vast majority of the restaurant community is closed. They're able to do to go, they're able to do delivery, what they have found. And, you know, uh, looking at the channels that I work through, people that are getting wine to go are not buying Grand Cru Burgundy, they're not buying Brunello, they're buying the buy the glass level wines. And instead of paying typically $40 in a restaurant for those wines, the restaurant is appropriately pricing them more closer to retail prices. Yeah, You know, a $20 add-on of a bottle of wine is far better than just having the wine sit there in the cellar. And it's truly a dichotomy. I think that wine right now can be purchased for really a fraction of what we were spending for it just a matter of months ago. But on the other hand, there's not much in the wallet right now. And sure. so it's kind of like all of these opportunities are out there, but we all have to be so careful about our budgets right now, mostly because we don't know how this story ends. Yeah, we don't know what the next few weeks, months, uh, or years could, could possibly be. And so, you know, I'm seeing a lot of consumers drinking more. They're actually spending more 
more, but the you know per bottle price and those kind of things are lowering. And really what you find is that they're going back towards things that are comfortable. So if you look at California Chardonnay, Napa Valley Cabernet, Provence Rosé, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, these things that are kind of tried and true that they know is going to be, you know what, that's going to be a great glass of wine tonight. That's what's being purchased orange wines and things from obscure regions. These things are really struggling right now because they don't have anyone to talk about them. And if I'm going to spend my hard-earned money, I want a guarantee that it's going to be great. And the guarantee comes from your classic places of production. Yes. So interesting. And, and actually, we are very much in a frame of mind as a country where people just aren't taking risks. That's evidenced by uh, how many people are actually cooperating and, and wearing masks. People are being very cautious about everything that they do. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, we got to talk about Rosé, but we also have to take a little break. But before we go to the break, I want to recognize the folks who got you and I together. Yes, absolutely. Because there's a cool event that's going to be going on on Saturday the 13th, and it is a global virtual Zoom event and explain, if you will, a little bit about who's hosting this and why. Certainly. So it's uh, Saturday, June 13th. It starts at 4 Eastern Time, 1 Pacific. And it's being put together by Chateau de Bern, which is a beautiful winery in the Cote de Provence area of Provence. And this is really focused around one of their great wines, Inspiration. And this is certainly a time where we could all use some inspiration in our lives and looking at how we can unite kind of across the globe. This is the time for rosé. And as I just mentioned, the kind of iconic region for rosé in the world is Provence. And so looking at how we can bring people together from all different sectors, from film, from music, from the wine world. You know, rosé kind of goes above just being a wine for wine lovers. It's a social wine. And so hopefully we can at least engage a little bit with some virtual social enjoyment of wine altogether across the globe. We're going to definitely jump into the details of that. But there is so much to say about rosé that actually doesn't generally get said. And I think it's one of those types of wine that people, they're very hesitant about it. Most don't understand it. And a lot of people will just say, I don't like rosé. And it's because they haven't really had much of any rosé. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll come back to that on the other yeah, side. Yeah, we'll come right? back. We're talking to John McDaniel of Second City Soil, but he is also one of the most respected and recognized sommeliers in the country. And I feel so grateful to have you on and to be able to have a very lighthearted conversation, by the way. We all need it at this time. And well, every moment of every day is yeah. something super heavy and it's so important what's going on in the world. But... This is going to be a little bit of happy relief. How's that? I love that plan. Okay. We're going to be back in just a second with John McDaniel on Grape Encounters Radio, so stay with me. I don't know what you're going to be doing on Saturday, June 13th, but I am going to be at one o'clock Pacific Standard Time joining in on what appears to be maybe the biggest rosé event in the history of mankind. That, that may be a bit of hyperbole, but we'll find out the, the real skinny on it from our very special guest, John McDaniel. Man, I'll tell you what, if I had his resume, I think I might be living in the south of France or someplace like that. You are very, very 
well-liked and respected, John. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a Psalm and go through all of that misery? <laughs> Which misery is worse? I got out of the world of politics and lobbying and found that wine was a much better way to live my life. You know, in politics, you're always wrong no matter what. And in wine, you can always be right. It's the opposite side of subjective, I guess. So never look back. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And what's really amazing about wine, we all know this, is probably the most effective thing to bring people together on the planet. How many scores have been settled peacefully over a bottle of wine? Or maybe 10? You know, the more that you go down, the more you realize you have uh, something in common with the other side, for sure. Mike Gergich likes to say, water separates continents, but wine brings people together, so you should drink wine and not water. And that is a lesson that we probably all should take right about now. Let's speak generally about rosé, because, I mean, truly, it really is very misunderstood. And yes. there are two words that I haven't heard in a really long time. And I remember I used to poke a lot of fun at this 12 years ago when we started the show, and the words are white Zinfandel. And that was yeah. the only frame of reference most Americans had to wine that is pink. And people still, many of them assume that pink means sweet. It's just amazing how that has colored our willingness and desire to explore the world of rosé. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting category because it's not white, it's not red. People draw their line in the sand on a daily or yearly basis for what they enjoy. And back to the height of white Zinfandel in the 80s, I mean, when I was growing up, my parents had a magnum of Behringer white Zin that lasted in the refrigerator for about nine months at a time. Mm -hmm. And it tasted the same on day one as it did on day 300. So that's really what most people are coming into. But, you know, rosé really kind of even predates red wine when you look at how it's produced and just that quick grass of red grapes and we're off and ready to run. And so it's certainly a category if you look at the traditions of rosé, if you look at the origin of it in southern France and Provence, it really is a wine that can be enjoyed year round, not just as a summer patio sipper, but uh, there's a lot that you can do with rosé, especially when you know you have a great winemaker, a great producer behind it. How do you convince the wine drinking public that it's okay to drink rosé in the dead of winter, for instance, because it sits dormant for a long time. And then when the weather starts warming up, people start flocking to it. And it has become a very, very hot wine. And there's no end to the types of rosés that are out there. I was listening to an interview that you did with another show, and you were talking about the younger population and the fact that if there's anything for sure that they do, it's that they shy away from the brands that their parents consume. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at, you know, the rosé campaigns and all the producers and the, the growth of the category, that growth has happened in a millennial audience with the rise of social media and beautiful people in beautiful places drinking wine and pink wine on a photo with the backdrop of Saint-Tropez or Ibiza or Santorini, like it just shows up better than a crisp white wine in, in the summer. So a lot of that has to do with the visual marketing aspect of it. But, you know, I say that rosé, especially if you have a rosé that has some structure to it, it's the Goldilocks of wine. It has the acidity, the crispness, the freshness for people that love white wines like Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio. But when you look at the flavor profiles, it has those strawberry flavors to it, blood orange, 
red fruits as a light red wine would be. So it's the ultimate compromise wine in December or July. But I wonder if it really is a compromise because I certainly have consumed a lot of rosés that can hold their own in a fight that are pretty sturdy wines. And I think just the word rosé is so intimidating to manly guys like you and me. You know, there's a certain fear that it's not manly to drink rosé. But oddly enough, I actually find in my own wine tasting room that men will order rosé sometimes more frequently than women. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's certainly a social connotation about it the same way that, you know, ordering a glass of Prosecco might be. But, you know, at the end of the day, if men aren't looking for necessarily a white wine, you know, they have, all right, I want something fresh, refreshing, light and easy. If I'm normally drinking Cabernet, I want something a little bit different now. But, you know, if you look at specifically a region like Provence, it still has those red fruit characters. It still has the structure. So it's not just freely pink juice. It has those kind of serious notes that, you know, someone used to drinking a little bit more bold wine can almost refresh the palate that way. So one thing that I continue to observe over, you know, the past, let's say, 10 years is that even though in other wine categories, you see this really ultra creative marketing going on with whacked out labels and peculiar names, clever names to describe wines. I don't see that so much in the rosé category. If you were to line up 20 bottles of rosé from Provence, those are going to look fairly conservative compared to other wines out there. And that's a super interesting thing to me because it seems like what's driving a lot of interest in other wines is this kind of bold new way that we market them. And yet it's much more stayed where rosé is concerned, but it continues to be a category that's just growing and growing and growing. What's the deal? It's opposite goals. If you look at wine as a broad category, wine has the perception sometimes that it is a pretentious beverage or an elitist beverage. And so many different brands out there, if you're producing Cabernet or Chardonnay, you know, want to make it more attractive to a younger audience, an audience that says, oh, that's fun. That's something that I want to drink. I love the label. We're very visual learners. Right. Those kind of fun and, and cheeky labels are trying to bring down and make it more for everybody. The rosé category is the exact opposite. People conceive rosé as fun and freely and light and not very serious. But the reality is, if you look at some of those more traditional labels, they come from very serious wineries. They right. come from very serious places. And it's almost the opposite. We want the label to show that it comes from a real chateau, that it's a real wine made by real people and not just pink juice uh, that could come from anywhere. So it's totally opposite thoughts in in the marketing of it. There is so much to say about Rosé. We're talking to John McDaniel, a major league consultant in the Chicago area, but also a highly respected sommelier who has won some incredible honors, including Food and Wine Magazine Sommelier of the Year and Wine Enthusiast 40 Under 40 tastemakers. That's a very big deal, by the way. We're going to be back in just a second and spend a lot more quality time with John, so stay with me. You know, even though I spend almost every waking hour trying to track down all things wine, Total Wine & More is always several steps ahead. They're always doing everything they can to distinguish themselves from everybody else. And even though I'm a little jealous of how well they're able to cover the world, they definitely make my job easier by turning me on to some of the next exciting discoveries. Did you know that Total Wine & More's buying team travels across the U.S. and around the world looking for new and exciting wines? Total Wine doesn't just sell the same old, same old. 
They're always busy forging relationships with the best producers so that they're able to provide exceptional wines that are exciting and new to you at incredible prices. Just look for the yellow Winery Direct tag. And for a contactless experience, try their new curbside pickup option. Simply order online and select curbside for an easy new way to shop. Have a little fun online. Order today at TotalWine.com. We're back with more Grape Encounters. Hey, please do us an enormous favor and like us on Facebook. It's the very best way to learn about other opportunities that we may not share on the broadcast. Also, join our mailing list on GrapeEncounters.com. Listeners on our contact list receive some exclusive opportunities. Become an insider. Enough said. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. I don't know how many people exactly are going to turn out for this very interesting and fun Zoom celebration that's going to take place on Saturday, June 13th. But I think uh, once people see uh, all of the people that are going to be participating in this event, it's just got to be one of the must-do virtual wine events. And I am particularly tickled to have on John McDaniel. He's one of everybody's favorite songs. There's been this, it seems like, trend in the psalm world to lighten up. Do we take wine too seriously, John? Yeah, I think so. You know, if you look at, you know, all the documentaries on on the sommelier profession, and, you know, it takes a very small percentage of what we're all about and amplifies it as far as how much knowledge you need to have and tasting and service and blind tasting and theory and questions and all this stuff. At the end of the day, it's grape juice. And, you know, we're just trying to, you know, alleviate our consumers to, you know, have a little bit of joy in their life to bring the story of farmers, uh, you know, to uh, to our guests. And, you know, so I think that it has kind of a sometimes negative perception of the profession. But, you know, I've spent my entire career just telling people, you know, as I think you have as well, wine is fun. It's uh, supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be rocket science or curing any sort of diseases. We're here for uh, a good time and to bring joy and to bring celebration. And that's what I'm here for in the wine world. But I think that anybody who catches is, you know, any of the, what are there, three now, Psalm films on Netflix. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sh- surely those have gotten a lot of viewing here in the past few months. You know, you watch that, and while it's great entertainment, I think to a lot of people, it's very disconcerting because I say to myself, gosh, I couldn't possibly retain even one one-hundredth of what they're doing on the screen, so why should I even bother? What do you say to that person? I mean, when you're sitting there and you're just looking at a wine list, this is your specialty is creating amazing wine lists for restaurants, but the typical consumer is not even going to be able to pronounce a good portion of the wines on that list. How do you instill a sense of comfort in the consumer who takes wine seriously, but just feels so distanced from the folks who are, you know, dedicating their entire life to understanding it and teaching it? Yeah, I think it's first, uh, you have to, you have to speak in the language of your guests. 
Every wine list that I've ever written as a sommelier uh, has tasting notes underneath it that kind of strip away all of the, well, where is that place? How do you say that? You know, right. the amount of times that a guest has handed me the wine list back and it could be a thousand bottles on the list and says, I'll have the one that tastes like blueberries. Right. Because I wrote blueberries. That's okay for me because I'm connecting with them in the way that wine makes sense to them. That's my job is to speak their language, not make them speak my language. That's the job of any great sommelier is to make sure that the person that you're sharing wine with, at the end of the day, they have to drink it. They're the one that's paying for it. I'm the one that's in service in hospitality to them. So I need to do everything possible to make sure that that is a positive interaction and that they want to come back. They want to drink another bottle of wine with me. So it's moving people away uh, from their comfort just a little bit at a time instead of saying, well, if you love oaky Chardonnay, you know, let me introduce you to Jura. That's the worst idea in the world. You have to bring them there slowly and, and find something that, oh, there's a familiarity there right. and I'm going to show you something that I believe that you'll enjoy right. as opposed to what I'm going to enjoy. It's not about me, it's about the guest. And something that I think has really been an amazing trend over the, the past decade now is just how young, hip, and cool being a psalm is. You know, now you've got cool guys with long hair and t-shirts <laughs> that are, uh, I hate to use the term, but pimping wines in a very sure very interesting and positive way. And that's done, I think, more to make people feel comfortable than almost anything else. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's about understanding that, you know, the psalm is about how to make, again, wine fun. You know, as the beer category is growing and they can have all sorts of funny labels and names and uh, spirits and cocktails are growing, you know, wine, you know, still needs to have a place for younger drinkers for that comfort. And also people don't realize about the sommelier profession, you know, they're not making six figures and driving a Ferrari to work. They're mostly hourly employees that work on tips. And, yeah. you know, when you look at all the insanity that's going on here, you know, all of them are out of work right now. I've, I've actually helped found the United Sommeliers Foundation. It's a charity dedicated to, you know, helping fund these people that are out of work because they're just like everybody else. They're an hourly employee. And so it's, it's a difficult time for them. You know what? I want to take a quick departure from our conversation right there for just a moment because I was reading up on that foundation and I want to <laughs> give you an opportunity here, right here and now to plug it so that anybody out there that wants to make a donation can do that. I mean, there are some wonderful people that have spent their entire life really mastering wine only to be sitting on the sidelines right now, waiting it out. And it's been very, very damaging to them and their families. So what can we do? Yeah. So uh, it's like I said, it's the United Sommeliers Foundation. So UnitedSommeliersFoundation.org. And go to the websites and or United Psalms on Instagram or Facebook. We're, we're just trying to raise funds to help people that are out of work. You know, as restaurants close, the sommelier profession was the first to be laid off. They'll be the last one to be hired back as restaurants open. And it's focusing on restaurant professionals, but also winery tasting room employees that wineries that have been closed and distributors that their sales reps that uh, are out of work as well. So it's really just to help support the wine community and people having, you know, a difficult time. And we've been around for about 10 weeks now and we've raised about $750,000. Oh my gosh. Uh, no kidding. Yeah. So that all goes back to, you know, helping people that you know, have applied. Our board is all volunteers and we're just trying to help as many people as possible. What I want to offer, John, is that we'll put a very, very, very prominent link at the top of our website so that it's easy. People can just go to grapeencounters.com and, and then we'll link you right over there if you want to participate in helping these people. So that's very much appreciated. Thank that's you. what we can do. Now, let's talk. Excellent. About, let's, let's <laughs> 
let's talk about our event that's coming up on the 13th. It's not just a celebration of Rosé, but there's some fun, interesting people that are going to be participating in it. We've got some acclaimed actors. We have musicians. And of course, we have you. Take us through it. All the above. Yeah, it's it's really a great way to look at how Rosé is just supposed to be fun. And so uh, this is all put on by Chateau de Bern, which is one of the most beautiful wineries that I've ever been to in my entire life. It's about an hour outside of Nice in the eastern part of uh, Provence. And, you know, it's really just meant uh, to be a way to unite people from different walks in our, our industry and entertainment and hospitality. And yeah. uh, so Vincent DePaul, who's a great actor, who was uh, on The West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, will be kind of our host. And we have Grammy Award winning uh, musicians and uh, other uh, actors as well that, uh, you know, have been awarded. And we'll have the amazing winemaker, uh, Lexi Cornu, who uh, makes wine for all the Provence Rosé Group wineries, including Chateau de Bern. And, you know, I'll be there as well, just talking about how uh, rosé is a category, kind of like what we're doing is something that can be enjoyed all the time. And it's about celebration. And we'll be focusing on the Chateau de Bern Inspiration wine, which is a wine that uh, is available nationwide. And we're running a contest as well leading up to that to kind of bring your own inspiration moment to that. I love that contest. Uh, talk about that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a contest that, uh, you know, when we look at sharing your own inspiration moment. So it's, uh, you know, wherever you are in the country, if you want to go and grab a bottle of Chateau de Bern inspiration, post on social media, kind of your inspiration moment, inspiration rosé. And uh, we have some, uh, you know, relative hashtags that are related to that. And I'll share the link with you. So it's, you know, ProvenceRosé.com backslash contests rules or contest hyphen rules. And it's really meant to, you know, show that rosé can be uh, so many different things. The creativity of the American spirit, I think, is going to uh, show show here really quickly. Yeah, there you go. Okay, we're going to be back for the home stretch with my very special guest, John McDaniel. Second City Soil is his business. He's a really, really amazing consultant. And I say amazing from the standpoint that I love his ideas. And if you get a chance to, you know, hunt down some other interviews, views with John, you'll see that he really gets it. And I think he really gets the consumer and what we really want, you know, and what we really want isn't necessarily what a lot of winemakers are giving us and a lot of restaurants are, are, are missing the mark as well. And so it's good that we have John around to keep us all headed in the right direction. How's that for a compliment? I love it. I'll, I'll use that on my business card that's already growing by the day. <laughs> yeah, it's, you better get a business card that's a scroll. All right, we're yeah. going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Today's edition of Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More. Every week we encourage you to look beyond the ordinary and seek the extraordinary. That's why you definitely want to check out Winery Direct at Total Wine and More. These products are identified by the yellow shelf tag in the store or online. The selection includes more than 2,000 of their 8,000 wines, and you could be confident that you're getting the highest quality wines produced by some of the world's most renowned winemakers at the best price. Winery Direct is one of the many things that makes Total Wine & More so unique. Order today at TotalWine.com. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters Radio right after this. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. Don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste.
back with Great Encounters Radio, talking all things rosé with somebody who knows an awful lot about it. It is John McDaniel. He is just the most insightful and amazing sommelier. I want to talk a bit more about rosé and what the heck it is. We don't even really hear the word white zin anymore, which is great uh, news, actually. <laughs> Although a mutual friend of ours, Wes Hagen, who's on the show pretty often, mm-hmm. makes no apologies for the fact that he goes to his favorite sushi restaurant and always orders a bottle of Behringer White's in there. So I guess that's okay, right? As long as he likes it, that's all that matters. That's exactly right. There are a number of different ways to create a rosé. Run through some of the different methods and tell me what you like and why. Certainly. So I think that the first thing that, you know, a consumer needs to understand is how rosé became pink. And, you know, when you look at the vast majority of rosé that is produced is a red, you know, made from red grapes. And so if we look at this, if people understand the black tea analogy that I use a lot of, if you're steeping black tea and you only steep it for 30 seconds, it's kind of like a lightest brown color, right? Right, right? If you steep it for five minutes, it's a very dark color. And so how red wine is made is just steeping grape skins, which are dark in color mostly, and steeping it on the clear juice of grapes for a long time. Rosé is steeping those dark red grape skins on the clear juice for a matter of hours. So you get a little bit of the flavor profile, you get a little bit of the color, it's dipping your toe in the water for a short amount of time. And so the rosé category, the main principle of that is it's a red wine that didn't stay in the oven long enough to become a red wine is basically how that looks. And how it manifests itself into the beverage is pretty interesting because you're borrowing some qualities from red wine, conventional red wines, and you're also getting a lot of what you enjoy in a white wine. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, the longer the skins and the juice stay together, that's when you're going to get really that dryness or the tannins, the, the kind of dry, you know, mothball sucking dryness from a, a big red wine comes from more skin contact for thicker skin. So rosé doesn't really have the opportunity to get that really dry, tannic kind of a style. So then it's left with the red fruits, but then the kind of white wine acidity. It has the crispiness, that right. zippy flavor to it. And that's really kind of where you get the best of both worlds is that it hasn't really uh, gotten as, as heavy as a red wine can be sometimes. All right. So I was talking to a longtime friend of mine just a week ago, and she asked me a question about rosé. You would think it's a simple question, but I don't really think the answer is that simple. She said, I want to drink rosé this weekend. How do I determine what I'm going to get in that bottle if there's such a broad range of styles of rosé out there? And rosé, I think, is maybe tougher than almost any wine in terms of pinning down the answer to that question. How do you guide people? Because it's a toughie. No, absolutely. And because, you know, rosé is made all over the world. I've had consumers ask me for a rosé and I said, oh, I have a rosé of Pinot Noir. And like, no, 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 I want the one made from the rosé. Great. Uh, It's my favorite too. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a a lot of confusion about it. And so it really looks at, you know, what you like in a wine, what you're looking for. And, you know, there are certain places in the world that are going to be more classic for certain styles. If you look at Provence, which Provence is the the mecca of rosé, it's the the birthplace of rosé, basically, that's going to be, you know, a drier style to it. It's not ever meant to be sweet. It's meant to be fresh and fruit forward. That's mostly what most rosé drinkers are looking for, is that what we call the Provençal style to it. Right. But now there are wineries and, and regions all over the world that are making their interpretation of that. So very fresh, easy styles of Pinot Noir rosé from the Willamette Valley in Oregon or in Paso Robles, very 
dark and brooding rosés that are somewhat closer to red wines, but also there are lighter examples there as well. So go into a wine shop and if you know nothing about rosé, pick two or three. Take a wine from Provence. That's the kind of benchmark classic. And then maybe something that looks completely different, a different area, a different grape, and do a side-by-side comparison, you know, and and that will really help you in the future for what rosé means to you. So if I wanted a rosé that really retained a healthy amount of the fruit and sweetness that some people are drawn to in, you know, those old, not really rosé wines like White Zinfandel, where do I find the sweet ones or something that at least is fruit forward? It's not going to be in Provence. No, definitely, you know, the Provencal style is is a drier style to it. And so the sweeter style or the fruitier style, some of that has to do with the price point. You know, typically your lower price wines are being created in a way, if you look at kind of sub $10, you know, that kind of a consumer is looking for something with more fruit to it. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit of sweetness to it, but a $7.99 bottle of rosé is definitely going to have some residual sugar there. It's going to have a little bit of yeah. sweetness to it, where the opposite end of that scale, the $25 to $30 rosé is going to be bone dry. And so you can kind of make some stereotypes about the price point and the sweetness level sometimes holds pretty true. Yeah, that's a really good point that the price point speaks volumes in terms of what the style of the wine is going to be. But one thing I want to make sure that we mention here when it comes to the Rosés of Provence, they are such a great value. I mean, I sometimes look at those wines and I go, how in the world can they make the wine, bottle the wine, ship it across the Atlantic, run it through all of the layers that we have to run wines through to get it to the consumer? And then it's not even 20 bucks. How is that possible? You know, part of it is all about land ownership. If you look at a winery like Chateau de Bern, they own all of their own vineyards. So they control their own farming, they control their own grape sourcing. And the economics of that, you can really control every part of it. The crazy thing about rosé production is that if you were to take those same grapes, make it into a red wine, you could probably charge twice as much and get it. Red wines of Southern France, of the Rhone, of Provence, you don't find a lot of sub $20. They're 30 to 40, definitely more on the expensive side. So a great winery like Chateau de Bern is taking very expensive grapes and making a wine that is a great value. So there's a lot that's in the bottle there that is definitely appreciated. And, you know, it's not something don't move to the south of France to make a million dollars on rosé, basically. Okay. We got to wrap it up here, John, but let's go over the details of this event that's coming up on the 13th of June. Chateau de Bern's Inspiration Rosé will be the feature wine for this year's celebration of National Rosé Day. And if you can't get that wine, then pick another one but by all means join in because you're going to learn a lot about rosé you're going to be entertained you're going to have a really good time they've really put together a great lineup and how do we get plugged in so it's a global zoom virtual tasting uh, sunday the 13th of june 4 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific and you can go to provence rosé group or chateau de burn facebook pages to uh, see all of the details there so appreciate you being on john you are a lot of fun to talk to we'll have a whole series i look forward to talking to you again Uh, okay that is going to do it for Grape Encounters for today. Man, time flies when you're having wine. (laughs) We'll see you here next week. I want to remind you that Grape Encounters Radio has been brought to you by Total Wine and More. You know, when you sell over 8,000 wines under one roof, you're going to meet consumers from every walk of life with different tastes and needs. Luckily, Total Wine has everybody covered with their nearly endless selection of wines to choose from, plus a variety of ways to shop. They even have in-store pickup and contactless curbside pickup, so you're in and out in a flash. 
From your favorite picks to rare finds, there's always something new to discover at Total Wine & More. Order today at TotalWine.com.